Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the One Million by One Million podcast. Today, we're going to discuss corporate innovation, and my guest is Anita Sands, who's on a number of Silicon Valley and technology industry boards and has had a long career in the financial service industry in the innovation management space. So we have a very interesting set of perspectives. Anita, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a great honor to be here. It's a wonderful podcast. I'm very excited. So, Anita, you have spent the first part of your career, well, you have spent the first part of your career being a physicist. So that's a really interesting training ground for someone who uh, went on to be in the innovation ecosystem. Would you actually tell me a few things about your journey as a physicist and how that ties into where you are today in the innovation ecosystem? Absolutely. It's a, it's a great, great question and an interesting story. Um, as you rightly say, I started out life as a physicist. Uh, my undergrad was in physics and applied math, and my PhD then was in atomic and molecular physics. But I realized about midway through my uh, PhD that I wasn't destined for a career as a research scientist, but rather I was very interested in the application of science and technology in the world. So I decided to take myself uh, off to the United States. I had grown up in Ireland, and I then did a master's in public policy and management. So that was the first of my career pivots, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. And then once I had finished my, my studies there, I then headed, actually I lived in Canada for seven years in Toronto, and that's where I sort of undertook my second career pivot, which took me into financial services. So four major uh, financial services institutions, one crisis, and about a decade later, I ended up back in New York where uh, my last role in financial services was as COO of UBS Wealth Management here in the Americas. And this was around you know, 2010, 11, 12, when everybody out here in Silicon Valley was really lighting the world up with mobile and social and cloud and big data, all the stuff we know and love today. And I was finding myself inside a Swiss bank kind of very much getting a lesson in physics uh, every day with what happens when an unstoppable force like innovation and digital meets an immovable object like a Swiss bank. Um, that, was my, that was my life. So I decided that I would pivot again and move out to San Francisco where I now work in the tech industry. And as you mentioned, uh, I spend most of my time doing board work for uh, public and private company boards, and then a lot of sort of advisory and speaking work on topics related to innovation and change. And really, the the lesson from my personal career trajectory has been that you know, learning how to deal with change, how to navigate it, whether that's within your own career or within your own work, um, is actually very valuable skills to have in today's age, where as we all know, the pace of change is increasing. Um, so that's, it's, I found it's been a helpful skill set to have developed, even if it was somewhat by accident rather than design. So let's um, break down today's conversation in two uh, major segments. One is I want to understand your perspective on innovation and transformation in the financial services space that has gone through during your tenure huge amount of change. Mm -hmm. And then... In the second part of the conversation, I'd like to focus on your Silicon Valley board work. And in particular, um, you are on the board of ServiceNow, which is a hyper-growth company that Silicon Valley and the technology ecosystem is watching very, very closely, how mm -hmm. the company is managing hyper-growth and, and what have you learned and what insights can you bring from the point of view of innovation management in the context of a hyper-growth company? How does that sound? That sounds wonderful. Sounds wonderful. All right. So let's, uh, let's do the first part, financial services. What were the key um, you know, changes, the vectors of change that were going sweeping over the financial services industry in the three assignments that you had that you particularly had to pay attention to? Oh, that, that's a great question because I think that hits on probably one of the most valuable lessons I learned about leading corporate innovation. And that is that innovation is very, very contextual. 
Um, it's a function of both the time and the cycle that the industry is in, as you, as you just referenced. It's also a function of the industry that, that you're operating in. So the definition of what innovation meant for a financial services firm like UBS is very different to what people at Apple or people at Boeing would think when, when they think about corporate innovation. So context very much matters. And the way that played out over the time that I was in the banking industry was I started running innovation teams before the financial crisis. And during that time, we were really focused on emerging technologies. It would have been the start of what is now all things digital. I guess it was sort of Web 2.0 kind of stuff back then. Um, but we were very much looking at emerging, emerging technologies and trying to think about new ways to enhance the customer experience or drive revenue growth. Of course, then, once the crisis hit, the context changed entirely. And when you were running a team that had sort of the change the bank skill set, our mandate was then um, to figure out how to re-engineer processes, uh, really with a goal of taking out a lot of cost and doing that as quickly and as, as thoughtfully as possible because obviously you have to manage a lot of operational risk. So that was sort of the first valuable thing I learned was that um, context matters, timing matters, and your starting point matters too. I mean, you know, I still talk to a lot of my colleagues in financial services and, you know, they express frustration sometimes that they wish they could just do everything as, you know, as quickly and with the same level of agility as a startup can. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, if you're operating inside a large, complex, established firm, you have a lot of inherent complexity. You have a lot of legacy. And that legacy takes all kinds of forms from legacy technology, processes, practices, training, and particularly legacy mindsets. So the starting point of where you're coming from when you're trying to sort of drive an innovation agenda is really important. And if you don't have adequate awareness of that, I think you're destined to sort of set up yourself for, you know, in the wrong situation, you know, with the wrong context, you're setting yourself up for failure. Yeah, you know, I uh, this, what you said reminds me of a of an anecdote. We uh, have a close relationship with Intuit, and um, the time that I'm describing, this is probably a few years ago, and Snapchat was incredibly hot. You know, Snapchat right. being a, com- a consumer, you know, social media thing that mostly teenagers and and young adults use. We had uh-huh. this conversation inside of Intuit. I was talking to the, at the time, chief innovation officer, I think, of Intuit. Uh, and, and he said, well, you know, um, we had in our innovation program, a, a project like that came up and, and we basically chose not to pursue it. So I turned mm-hmm. around and, and said, why, why are you saying this as if you regret that? Because you made the right decision. Snapchat or equivalent should not be part of Intuit's innovation agenda. It's contextually relevant. That's right. That's right. And that was one of the most important points, actually. I, I had to drive alignment around this idea that, um, you, know, you know, just because something's possible doesn't mean that you should pursue it. And I actually found it was very important, just the point you were making, to bring people onto the same page relative to what innovation is and isn't in a given firm. And my working definition, what I ended up using as my mantra, was that innovation connects what's possible to what's valuable. So just right. because something is possible, like your example with, with Snapchat, um, it wasn't going to be valuable to Intuit's customers. So I think that's a very important point for corporations to be disciplined around because at the end of the day, you know, they may have a lot more resources to pursue innovation than a startup has, but they don't have infinite capacity in terms of time. And they're still trying to run a successful growing organization as well. So you actually have to be quite disciplined about uh, making sure you're focusing on the value that your innovation can drive and that that's relevant to your customers. Yes. So, you know, Another point that um, you and I have talked about in our um, offline conversations that I would like to pursue um, a little more diligently here. Um, So again, as you know, uh, One Million by One Million has an innovation program and we work with various corporations. And part of that incubator in a box enables corporate innovation in the context of intrapreneurship. 
And mm-hmm. one thing we have learned, and, and this has been now many years, we're doing this for, you know, five, six years. And one thing we have seen is a lot of projects that come out of intrapreneurship programs for, let's say, an Oracle, could be incremental projects, uh, could be process innovation that, you know, improves the process. And it, you could, you know, it's not earth shattering. It's not a moonshot. It's not, you know, it's not going to change. It's not going to create $5 billion worth of revenue. But it's a, it is an innovation. It is a piece of innovation. It is something that creates tremendous efficiency within the organization. It may not be glamorous, but it's valuable. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You're, you're so right. I mean, and then again, that, that's exactly why the context matters, right? So if you're dealing with the oracles of the world, um, you have a couple of things that matter. First is that they have a lot of great assets. They have a lot of stuff that's working well. So on the margin, to your exact point, if you can incrementally improve something that's already working quite well, you can potentially retain all of that intrinsic value and add to it. Um, so that was another thing I used to try and focus people around is that, you know, innovation is focused on adding new value, not just necessarily new things, right? And often the combination of a couple of things that you have inside a company like Oracle, maybe you have a data set here that combined with a new piece of technology over there could release incremental value. So I really do think that it's an important um element of an innovation program is to focus on small changes on on incremental value and the reason why i think that's important is that i mean you talked about generating this notion of entrepreneurship and that's cultural as much as it is a practice or a policy and when you get people into a mindset of continuous improvement and incremental change you are generating that culture you're you're kind of indicating that we value people that are looking for continuous improvement we value people that are willing to challenge the status quo and to assumptions and to not necessarily just accept things as we're doing them today so i think it's very important that you know you make innovation everybody's job and that you encourage your employees to seek innovation in everything they do. And therefore, if you're working in finance or you're working as an engineer, you equally have a role to play in driving innovation at, at an Oracle, for example. So I, I think you know, programs focused on giving people those skill sets like, like you have done are tremendously valuable and really help to create both the right culture and then the right mindset and the right sort of notion of responsibility that innovation is, in fact, everybody's job. What um, have you concluded through your various um, assignments in this realm in terms of process? What processes have worked for you? What are some examples of best practices? Yeah, so maybe let me share two, and they're they're kind of related. Um, Probably the most valuable thing, as I look back on you know, all of the best we placed and the, the various processes that we put in we put in place to try and work through um, innovation from ideation right through to end-to-end execution was that innovation really works for large companies at the perfect intersection of three things. I used to describe it as sort of a three-legged stool, and if one of the legs was shorter than the other two, things would topple over and, and not work. So the three things are, first of all, there needs to be a market need. There needs to be a customer need for the problem. The second is that there has to be a business model. There has to be a way to make a buck or save a buck um, if, if, if that's what you're looking to do. And the third thing is that there has to be a technology that is robust, mature, and scalable enough to support your idea, to develop your solution at the scale that a large enterprise needs. And if one of those three things isn't right at the, at the right moment in time and they don't come together perfectly, then it won't work. And a great example for us was probably the early days of mobile payments um, back in, this would have been like the 2006-07 era. Uh, I was working in Canada. And we, we knew mobile payments were coming. We absolutely knew that it was going to be something the bank would end up doing and doing a lot of. And we were starting to explore the territory and how we might uh, engage. What was very clear at that time, though, was that the market need wasn't fully there yet. Um, at that time, when we started going to market with it, it was clear in Canada that only certain segments of the population actually wanted to adopt mobile payments there and then. They were mostly immigrants or younger people. Um, it wasn't the mass market adoption that you see today. 
The second thing that we ran into was from a business model perspective, it wasn't clear between the banks and the telcos who would actually own the relationship with the customer and, and how the economics would work. Um, and then the third thing was, from a technology standpoint, so this was pre-iPhone and so forth, uh, really the only way to, to deliver mobile payments were through SMS uh, messaging. So that was a very limited kind of technology architecture for us to sort of right. try and work with. So it was a really valuable lesson in looking back. And you, all, all you needed to do was roll the clock on kind of a couple of years and with the introduction, introduction of the iPhone, uh, mass adoption and so forth, you could see how the market was going to, to move quickly. But you have to get your timing right. So that was, that was one very valuable uh, process lesson that I learned. The second is that when I talk to a lot of companies, I'm sure you've seen this too with your work, they talk about having kind of a funnel. And, you know, they might start with 100 great ideas wherever they source them from and they get down and their batting average is maybe one to maybe it's four out of 100 that actually end up being executed and in, in, in fully in market. And I actually, when I look back now, I realize that a funnel is the wrong concept. A better concept is kind of like a conveyor belt because the pace of change is so fast now that some of the reasons why you decided not to pursue a certain idea at a point in time may have shifted. So you yes. need to have a head around being willing to revisit ideas and accept that your assumptions may have changed, um, the conclusions you reached may now no longer be valid. But I've seen a lot of teams, you know, and maybe it's a new person that comes to the company and they say, hey, what about X, Y, Z? And the incumbent kind of, you know, tenured employees say, oh, no, we tried that two years ago. It didn't work. Or we looked at that before and that doesn't apply here. And that may have been the right answer at the right time. But that's not to say that, that the conditions and the underlying that's circumstances right. haven't changed. So they're my two most valuable lessons. That's a very good point. You know, um, so... In our process, there are a few things that we have learned that speak to some of the points you're pointing out. So, so we do with our uh, partners who are using our methodology, we do contests. You know, twice a year we do contests, uh -huh. a, fall, a fall challenge and a spring challenge where we invite uh, from the organization, let's say a company has 100,000 employees, all 100,000 employees are invited to present applications uh, that they want to learn this methodology, the 1 million by 1 million methodology of um, innovation and apply to be part of a structured innovation program. And then mm -hmm. the corporation gets to choose which projects are going to be actually supported, whether it's process innovation or product innovation, whichever one. We only, so far we only work with technology product companies. So the methodology is very much technology product company oriented. But but your point about timing is very interesting because, you know, in some cases, um, somebody within the organization will come up with an idea as part, as they're going through the pro uh, program with us, they will come up with an idea. And that idea may have competitors in the startup market. And and that's validation in itself because if it's a venture funded mm -hmm. company out there that is somebody else has done due diligence that's already out there, then the company has to make a choice of whether it's a build versus buy decision, right? Is it a, is it worthwhile buying this company for a very you know huge amount of money, or is it something that you just build and and then you have the channel already? An Oracle or a service now would have the channel, so it's basically you know if it's a if it's a development project that can directly go in through the channel to the existing customer base, you can kind of leapfrog the startup's entire cycle of development doing that. And that's a, that is a timing question, I think. Yeah, yeah. And it's good. You have the time to do that or not. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And that's another challenge that organizations fail to understand is that you have to create capacity for change. Um, you have to create the capacity and you have to create the capability. So that's why I think like a method like yours and a, and a sort of a very structured program um, that gives everybody kind of transparency into how innovation is going to work and where those good ideas that are coming from employees are actually going to go because that's another 
issue is, is that you see companies going, okay, well, we'll put out sort of an ideation platform and we'll get all these great ideas from our employees, which they do, and then they fail to execute on any of them. And that actually right. can create a huge sense of disillusionment. It's one thing to know that your idea was looked at and, and not pursued for, for all the right reasons and, you know, right. looked at objectively with criteria. It's another thing just to feel like it's vanished into a black hole. And, that's and that's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So, so I'm, I'm going to make a couple of points on what you just said to underscore what you said. But just going back to your timing point, you know, I was talking to um, head of commercial banking in American Express, and uh, she explained to me that they waited, American Express waited a long time before they got into this kind of micro-lending um, Business, which uh, companies like OnDeck and Lending Club are doing. Um, Lending Club is peer-to-peer. OnDeck is actually lending working capital loans. American Express just sat on the sidelines and waited. And then they created their own version of that. And, and that's going really well. Intuit, by the way, has done the same thing. They are doing working capital lending with their own money within their own platform. They didn't buy. They actually built it themselves, but they waited for the right, right time, for the technology to mature. Your point about the technology maturing and the market maturing to some extent when you're doing, when you're making these timing decisions from the point of view of a large company, it's actually better to wait a little bit for the technology to mature before jumping in and, and going into exactly. a field which is very new. Exactly, because you have to do it at scale, right? If, if you, you have to do it at scale, never, exactly. Yeah, and, and it's, it's got to be heartened. And, and otherwise, you know, you, you do run the risk of actually, you might be pursuing a great innovative idea, but you may run into a lot of reputational damage if you roll something out to your customers and it really doesn't work. That, that is not in keeping with the expectations that a lot of customers have of very successful brands. And I think it's one thing for the Googles of the world to get away with releasing beta products as a little bit of a different expectation um, right. in, in that kind of a sphere. But for a, lar- a lot of large companies, a company like a bank, they just don't get kind you of can't around to in the experiment. Bank, no. Yeah, exactly, no. exactly. But what I love about your point too, what really resonates with me is just fundamentally what you're talking about is there's a thoughtful discipline around innovation and I think that's a very important word is that you know innovation if you're going to do it successfully and do it at scale it actually has to be quite a disciplined process it's a creative process but creative processes can actually be pretty disciplined and when you put the right boundary conditions in place I think it leads to more success rather than constraints yeah and and this is a very important culture question, right? So if you talk to people who have been inside Google in the era of 20% flexible time, they'll tell you it's a it's kind of like a madhouse, right? People are doing whatever, and and not much productivity-wise, not much is coming out of it. And you have a lot of people who are frustrated because they're doing whatever. Their ideas basically are not going anywhere because there's no structured process to evaluate those ideas and bring those ideas to bear. So people are, it's kind of helter-skelter, and I don't think that's the way innovation processes should be run. I agree. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Now, what what we do very successfully is address that culture of, giving people a platform to innovate within a structured process. And if their ideas are not adopted, there is a good reason and a good explanation why they're not adopted. For Mm -hmm. example, Mm -hmm. TAM, right? Total available market size is a very big determining factor in venture capitalists investing or not in a company. If the TAM is not a billion dollar plus TAM, a VC is not going to invest in a startup. This is how the venture capital business works. It's not subjective. It's, it's right. you know, there's a very objective, very kind of good explanation of why a $200 million TAM company cannot raise venture capital. Mm-hmm. The same mm-hmm. philosophy applies to, uh, to corporations and innovation inside of corporations. There is a TAM question. If, you're, if your idea is a $20 million TAM question for a $10 billion company, that is not relevant. Exactly right. Exactly. Because the the thing about for the large companies, even unlike the the VC startup example, is 
they have a high opportunity cost, right? So every exactly. dollar that's diverted in one direction inside a large company to pursue an idea or an initiative versus another has a much higher opportunity cost and therefore I think should have a higher, um, a higher barrier, if you will, or a higher hurdle. Um, not to mention that, the, you know, the previous point around expectations are very different for a startup um, versus a large company endeavoring to do something. Yeah. You know, the other thing that my observation looking at, uh, and I don't know what you're seeing in both on, in the financial services industry as well as in the companies that you're on the board of, there is this popularity of hackathons. <laughs> People think yeah. hackathons are great innovation programs. I don't. I mean, hackathons are fine. They're, you know, they're kind of fun. But um, I don't think people should be investing in doing a lot of prototypes and software development without a business case analysis of an idea. What do you think? I completely agree. I mean, I, I think it's just a the latest incarnation of, um, you know, that, that setup for uh, kind of unrealized expectations. Um, because... You know, ultimately, innovation is an end-to-end -end process. It's a disciplined end-to-end -end process that goes from ideating at one end right through to kind of, you know, your proof of concept, your proof of value, your, your scaling, you know, tests. But ultimately then, it's got to be, in the context of a large company, it's got to be brought in and integrated into the overall operating cadence, the overall operating model of the company. So when you do something, and it's another reason, I think, why, you know, big organizations that set these um, sort of innovation satellite hubs up, right, in kind of cool places, and they put these people in cool offices sort of away from the mothership. On one hand, I can understand the, the virtue of that in terms of attracting a different kind of talent and, you know, having people work with sort of a different set of, of boundary conditions. But ultimately, for that to be a meaningful, valuable, incremental piece of work for the company, it's got to be integrated then into the operating model of how business gets done, how, how software is sold. Um, and, you know, so it's really important that you think about that from an end-to-end -end perspective. And to your point about the hackathons, they are fun and they are great and they are a way to engage people and get people kind of excited. But, but ultimately then, how is that going to move into the operating world, right? How is that going I to move into the place? I don't think it's worth that all. You end up with a whole yeah. bunch of cutesy prototypes that goes absolutely nowhere is what the right. end game of a hackathon is. And, and the way I have come to, you know, after, you know, several years of thinking about this and, and actually hands-on being in, in this game with a number of corporate partners, I have come to the conclusion that you have to constantly, as the ideas are germinating, you have to constantly talk to the different product managers of adjacent product lines. You have to talk mm -hmm. to the sales people who are selling adjacent product lines who have some view into what the customers are thinking and so forth and really make it an immersive process that is very much in touch with the organization as opposed to being shoved away somewhere in some cutesy office That's in right. some, That's you know, right. faraway place. I could I, I not agree with you yeah. more. Yeah, yeah. I think you've hit on the operative word, immersive process, right, as opposed to innovation being as something you do in isolation. Isolated, <laughs> I think yeah. That's the, the punchline yeah. of uh, what, what we're both saying, which is, which is right. Yeah, okay. All right, so let's switch gears a bit and uh, talk about hypergrowth. Of course... Uh -huh. Especially in the software and ser as a service industry, the industry is going through hypergrowth, and there are lots of great companies in the market right now that are going through hypergrowth. And, and you sit on the board of one of the most prominent of those, which is ServiceNow. Mm -hmm. Tell us what you have learned about managing hypergrowth. Wow. It's, uh, first of all, it's been an amazing experience. It really has. I've been on the board for four years now, and uh, the company, of course, was doing very well before I got there, and hopefully will be doing very well after I leave, but it's been an amazing experience. And uh, I think there's some great and very valuable lessons to be learned. Um, probably the first and foremost, and some of these will seem kind of obvious, but actually when you, when you really see where the rubber hits the road, they're not that obvious at all. Um, I have yet to see a company that is as disciplined around execution that has such a high performance culture as ServiceNow has. Um, and that's sort of been embedded in their genome from day one, certainly something that Frank Slupin as CEO, um, you know, drove very hard. 
So that was probably the, my you know number one observation. Um, the second thing is they just have a myopic focus on the customer. And from the very early days on, they really wanted to do something that could make the lives of their customer better. And they've stayed relentlessly focused on that. Um, you know, they're now working through kind of the creation of a customer success organization because they are becoming such a predominant player in the ecosystem of, of major enterprises. So that's been very important. Um, the third thing, I think, was, was really a leadership question, right? And I give Fred Luddy, who's the original founder, a tremendous amount of credit here. Um, you know, Fred was a little older when he started ServiceNow. It wasn't his yeah. first rodeo. And I think he had the, the maturity and the foresight and the self-awareness, quite frankly, to appreciate that there was going to become a time when he wasn't the right person to lead the company. He, could, he, he stayed. He's, he's actually still involved. He's still in our board. He's our chairman of our board now. So he's remained involved as, as an iconic figure loved by employees and customers alike. But he realized that in order to bring in, he needed to bring in kind of a professional CEO who knew how to scale a company, he knew how to put all of the, all of the pieces in place um, to create the success story that has happened today. So, so Fred handed the reins over at the right point in time to Frank Slutman. And, you know, I've, I'm working with and, and advising a lot of, of earlier stage startups. And many of them have this sort of technical founder, you know, in place. And, you know, some of them really don't have that same level of comfort or confidence or self-awareness to realize that their company could do so much better by bringing in a CEO who's actually not learning everything on the job, right? I mean, it's a great thing for these founders to embrace, uh, you know, running a company and starting up and, and getting going. But, but really, do you want to have to learn every single thing new on the margin as a, as a first-time CEO? Um, I think that jeopardizes your chances of, of success to quite an extent, depending on, on the individual in question. So, you know, Frank, Frank knew better, and he brought in – Fred knew better, he brought in Frank, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. But equally – to give Frank his dues, Frank realized that, you know, he had taken the company, you know, right through the IPO, right up to sort of two billion in revenue. Um, they have, you know, publicly stated objective of four billion in revenue by twenty twenty, um, which uh, which they're on a great path to achieve. And Frank realized that, you know, ServiceNow started by selling into the CIO organization, but it is a workflow platform that extends beyond the enterprise across the enterprise. So now they're selling into other parts of the enterprise. They're selling into marketing. They're selling into HR. They're selling into customer service. And Frank, to his credit, said, you know something? I Could I lead this company for the next phase? Yes, I could. But is there likely somebody out there who could do a better job, who knows enterprise transformation, who knows a world beyond the CIO domain? Absolutely. And he set that expectation that when the time was coming, not when the time came, when the time was coming, that he would hand over the reins. And as a board director, that was a very, very um, magnanimous and you know mature, thoughtful approach because that left us in a position where when we were looking at CEO succession and recruiting a successor for Frank, we had the luxury of solving for an outcome and not a timeline. We weren't kind of forced, our hand wasn't forced to go into the market and you know try and find the best of who was available. We could look at candidates over a period of time, and when we really felt we had complete conviction around in a certain individual, we could act. And therefore, when John Donahoe came along, um, the board were just so, you know, found his vision very compelling, found his experience very compelling. And what we loved about John were two things. One is that he comes from the consumer world. And, and Frank and Fred and those of us on the board had a really strong conviction that, you know, the expectations of customers and employees are merging. And it's not okay for customers to have this seamless, frictionless, delightful experience with all of the software and the apps they're using in their home lives. And then they walk across the threshold into a company and they're dealing with these clunky, outdated, terribly designed, not intuitive enterprise IT applications. And we just don't think that's the future. We don't think that's acceptable anymore. So we wanted somebody that brought that consumer DNA into the company. And, of course, then John was also the CEO of Bain, uh, the consulting group. So he has a very deep ex you know, set of experiences in enterprise transformation. And he knows how to talk to CEOs about thinking about that. 
because I think as all of us, you know, that have, you know, you've been very heavily involved in this, you know, innovation and transformation extends way beyond just what you do with your technologies. It's about your processes and your culture and your people. And um, John has an incredible amount of depth there. So, so I really think that the less there's an amazing lesson there for startups to like you know, have the thoughtfulness, have the self-awareness to know when the time is right to hand the baton on to the next guy or, or, or gal. Um, I hope that people surround themselves with a board that can advise them to do that and can bring that objectivity to that decision. Um, but, you know, Frank often talks about one of the hardest things for startups, actually, and for a startup CEO, is realizing when you have outgrown somebody. And knowing when that the person that maybe took you from not to 10 million or the guy that took you from 10 to 100 million isn't the person that can take you from 100 million to a billion. And it's very hard sometimes right. for founders, I think, to let go of that, you know, those people that have been in the trenches with them from, from day one. And But yet, if you want to be successful, you have to be willing to, to recognize when somebody is at the limits of their experience or capabilities, and uh, yes. including yourself. And that's the lesson we learned from, from Fred and from Frank. So this is an interesting point, and um, I, I'm just going to make one comment, and then I'm going to switch um, us to a few other aspects of um, hypergrowth that I want to discuss with you. Um, just one thing to remember here is that some of the most successful companies in the world have been led by founder CEOs, which is, you know, whether it's Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg, they have or, built yeah, very yeah, large yeah, companies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and Steve Jobs actually got into a tremendously traumatic situation being fired out of Apple. And, and, and by the way, the Steve Jobs that came back to Apple is not the same Steve Jobs that left Apple. That got fired, yeah. yeah. He got fired, he matured, and he came back as a very different CEO. So right. um, so that, that, <laughs> that was actually warranted probably that he be replaced. But it was uh, – so I think it's, it's – um, I will defend a little bit the founder's desire to drive the vision of the company often. You know, I mean, Fred actually stayed in that role for a long time before he, he handed things over. He did, and he, st- and he stayed in the role of, as head of product after he brought yes, Frank in. Yes, exactly. So I'm not exactly. advocating that the, the, the founder needs to sort of disappear, you know, over the horizon at all. I'm just sort of, you know... It's a very tricky transition. I've gone through this is, transition is, myself. Yeah. And, and I got fired by, we brought in a CEO, and, and the first thing the CEO did was fire me. And then as a result, the company lost its entire product vision. So it, it can be very, very tricky. The personality um, yes. you know, dynamics yeah. can be very tricky. So, But let's go to, the differ, to a different point, which is um, there are two things going on in a hyper-growth company um, that I want to discuss. One is the internal innovation structure, especially engaging the grassroots in innovation. And then the second point is external innovation and M&A. ServiceNow, for example, has acquired a lot of companies. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you could speak to both of those um, in separate segments on how do you, how does the company think about structure and framework for internal innovation and then structure and framework for external innovation and M&A? Yeah, yeah, so great question. Um, and, you know, and I think the two of them are linked or certainly can be linked. Um, when you think about uh, certainly some companies making acquisitions for the talent uh, that's, that's involved and, and the expertise as, as much as the, the actual product or any of the intellectual assets uh, a company might have, um, you're right, ServiceNow has, has done uh, quite, quite a bit of M&A, but they have an incredibly disciplined approach to it, and they had a very kind of clear philosophy about what they were going to do. Now, I think as we look from going to 2 to 4 to 10 billion, our philosophy may change, and we may have a different uh, approach, and we'll be disciplined about that. But up until kind of the point where we got to you know, 1, one 2 billion, um, and this was really kind of under Fred's uh, leadership, uh, Fred and Frank, I should say. Um, they felt that it was important to be disciplined about the um, potential targets they looked at. And they had a very fundamental belief that unless a company they acquired, unless that technology could be written into the code base of service now, could be not, you know, not completely integrated into 
um, our platform that it wasn't something they were going to do. And mm-hmm. that meant when we were in discussion with, with startups and other companies we were looking at, that had to be something that that team and that founding team were willing to work with us on because we felt very strongly that we did not want to get into having multiple code bases. We didn't want to get into a situation where we would make that more complex for our customers as to what version they were on and so forth. Um, we felt that it was an important element of the discipline to rewrite every single M&A opportunity into our code base and fully integrate it and fully integrate the team in. So mm-hmm. that was that was core to our philosophy in the past. Now, like I said, going forward, you know, will that approach differ? And, you know, if you look at kind of the Oracles or the Cisco's or whatever of the world, they've obviously had very different very philosophies different. around M&A. Um, and that's okay. So I, I'm not, you know, advocating for one or the other. I just think what's important is that you are thoughtful about what your criteria are and why and that may change over time but but that was what we uh we we did up until this point um in terms of internal innovation um let me maybe just make two comments first of all uh what i would say sets ServiceNow aside and and you you probably have way more data points than i than i do but my observation is they very much focus their innovation um, efforts and their roadmaps around the feedback they were getting from customers. So they really kept that loop very, very kind of tightly in place. And they didn't sort of, you know, let themselves get distracted by kind of the shiny object syndrome of, well, we could do X, Y, Z. It's back to what we were talking about earlier that, you know, innovation has, has to connect what's possible to what's valuable. So they stayed very focused on what was going to add value to the customer, what were they hearing in terms of feedback, what were their customers were hoping to see next in terms of our platform. So that was one element of the of the vision. Um, the second thing they did was they were very thoughtful about keeping, you know, the the product piece, the sales piece and the financial piece all kind of lined up and having a vision and having a strategy but making sure that all three kind of elements of 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 the operational side of it were very much aligned um so they didn't let the kind of product innovation get way out ahead of what the sales team could actually sell um and vice versa they didn't let the sales guys go into the field promising a bunch of things that the the product team couldn't ultimately deliver so i guess i'm back to this point of there was a lot of discipline around how they approached um, innovation and so forth. So that that's there probably two of my main um, observations. The the other thing that they recognized was that just from an end to end perspective, it's one thing to be like a single product, single channel, single geography company. When you're making that move, as a lot of startups you know who are successful do, um, into being multi product, multi channel, multi geography, they set themselves up structurally in a different way. And that was actually a bit of a bumpy transition for us. It, it was kind of rough over a couple of quarters as, as everybody realigned into the new org design and org structure. But it was, again, so, so critical to do before we needed to do it so that we were set up on the right rails and then that each of the individual product um, application teams could, you know, could could focus on what they needed to do and, and move their, their part of the organization forward. So that was, um, that was important for us as well. But Maybe the the singular piece that I think some startups struggle with is what is act two, right? So a lot of them have this amazing original vision. They yeah. have One you know, spotted funny. a hole in the market. Yeah. And and they have you know then they they've spotted a, a gap they've spotted a problem they've developed a solution and they're up and running and they're you know they're they're making uh, a success of it and they're at a certain point, but at some point there has to be a second act. Right, you right. have to know what's coming next, and I've seen companies struggle with with that and leaving it too late. Um, so then they start, and you know, unfortunately, the times are such that just the expectations around kind of you know sustained growth at these incredible levels are are so high that once you kind of come through your IPO and you know that growth starts to taper off from 60% year over year to 30% year over year over year, you know people started to go, but, but what next, right? And yeah. uh, it's important to be way out ahead of that as well, I think. So uh, just listening to you, um, I love this whole, you know, keeping all your innovation process 
side to customers bit. And I think, you know, that may yield slightly less glamorous, um, you know, innovation, but it, it really keeps, I think, the, a, a good solid innovation process running. The thing that is tricky at the stage that ServiceNow is, it's still going through hyper growth, but it's now getting to a much larger organization, right? It's, it's over 7,000 people. And, yep. um, and there are a lot of people through the um, grapevine, through the grassroots that are connected to customers in different ways, right? Somebody knows something about an, a customer, an aspect of a customer, a particular need of a customer. And, and this could be a, a relatively junior engineer, and uh, or a and or a pre-sales engineer, but there is there needs to be process to bring that knowledge and insight back into the decision makers through a sustained process, so that you can you are not missing opportunities for Act Three and Act Five and Act Ten as this company scales, and that's where I think a lot of innovation processes are failing right now. There's a a lot of innovation opportunities, you know, customer immersive innovation opportunities that are left on the table because the, the grassroots are not tied into the decision-making process in the product organization. Right, right. right. And that is, that is I, th- I mean, I, I think you're spot on about that. It's, it's one of the things that gets more difficult as you scale, but so many things get more difficult as you scale. But, um, and, and that's central to what you're talking about, so is the flow of information. That, you know, I think organizations have been structured in such a way historically that information flows effectively from the top down. But what happens, as you rightly say, when somebody on the front lines actually has that really insightful piece of information from the customer, uh, how does that information flow back up to the to the organization. So, I, you know, I, I believe that as we migrate more towards kind of this sort of agile, you know, more modular way of, of structuring ourselves as, as companies, um, which reflects kind of the, the dominant technology of today, uh, I do think companies are going to have to, I'm not saying ServiceNow has got this right yet or, you know, but I think we're on a learning curve like so many others, but I do think it's going to be so important to empower those teams um, at the front lines uh, to give them a certain degree of autonomy around how they operate, but then to have some mechanism where things are loosely coupled together and there is alignment. Um, you need methodology. You need methodology yeah. that yeah, yeah, ties yeah, the, yeah, those pieces so. together. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think you so. You know, the other... Uh, big companies. The other thing you said about um, the m policy and the extreme thoughtfulness, and I see Fred in this, right? I, I know Fred. <laughs> uh-huh. He's such a thoughtful and, 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 you know, deep man. So I completely, I, I hear you describe and I see Fred's face. <laughs> so um, it's actually in, the, in the, the process of ensuring that there is code-based compatibility and so forth, there's one thing that comes to my mind is that you have to catch them early. If you want to have that level of compatibility, you have to catch these in a, this acquisition opportunities early. And very mm-hmm. often I talk to CEOs about how do they keep in touch with companies that they want to acquire. And they say, oh, we talk to VCs. We are in touch with all the VCs. Our corporate dev team is touch, in touch with all the VCs. And I'm thinking, that's maybe too late. If you want to really, you know, have a good view into who are the players in your industry who are doing innovative work, and if you want to really know who they are early, you need to be, you need to have, again, process, methodology, mechanism to be able to be in touch with these people a lot earlier so that you have an ability to influence how they're structuring their code and how they're Organized because, and then if they do succeed, they do validate. If you do want to acquire them, then the acquisition is a seamless acquisition. But if you don't have those relationships and those touch points early on, then you're going to inherit companies that are much further along, heavily venture funded. The price tags go up, and the compatibility right. is not not as seamless. Yeah, yeah. Now you're you're so right. I mean, we we see that a lot at, at, at Semantic, which is another company I'm on the board of, because the cybersecurity space is so dynamic, yeah. um, and there's so many emerging oh, technologies heavy. and 
yeah, M&A centric, you know, um, and it's just really hard to make that judgment call as to as to when the timing is right for something. Um, you know, you you talk a lot about this being an ecosystem, right? And it is. So, right. you know, in an ecosystem, you have to be you know, very holistic and very open-minded about where you're sourcing your thoughts from, where what you're exposing yourself to, and are you getting that kind of diversity of exposure and perspective. So I think the VCs are an important stakeholder, obviously, and they, you know, they have um, a lot of exposure to some good stuff, but it extends far beyond that. Um, the one lesson I probably learned from Fred Luddy about this is Fred was always very, um, he was great at reminding us not to stick our heads in the sand, you know, not to be an ostrich about what was happening out there on the landscape. And as you become more successful, you, you know, you can drink a little bit of your Kool-Aid and it can get easier to dismiss some of these emerging players. And Fred, I remember in many board meetings used to say, like, like find out what is it, what is it about these new players that customers love? What, what, what do they like about them, right? So, you know, when the slacks of the world started to appear, like what is it about slack that people actually love? Yeah, and it's yeah. so important for you to be open-minded um, about the fact that your competitor may have something that customers love and you need to pay attention to that and not be defensive about it. So Fred was really great because, you know, as, as, as you said so rightly, you know, he is very thoughtful, but he also remained very um, strong in his conviction that he was there to do the right thing for the customers. He wanted to make the world of work work better for people, right? That's the, the mission of the company. And he was open-minded, therefore, as as to where he should think and how he should think as the landscape started to shift, right? Yeah. And I think just having uh, an open-mindedness and an ability to, you know, as you rightly say, get out there and talk to a broad set of stakeholders, um, and including customers, and, and make sure you understand how, how things are shifting. Great. Well, fabulous, fabulous conversation, Anita. We are uh, coming to the end of the scheduled time, so let me offer you an opportunity to make some closing comments, and then I am, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up. I'm sure we could go on for another three hours. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, look, thank you so much for the opportunity to join you this morning. It's been a pleasure. I've been a huge fan of your work, and, and I think all of the incredible content on your website is so much to offer any of us um, in the ecosystem, whether you're working with a small startup or you're on the board of a large incumbent. So I really thank you for, for your contributions to this really important ecosystem and this incredibly important topic. So thank you so much for, for the chance to chat today. Fantastic. And audience, thank you for listening. Thank you for staying with us. Um, I will come back to you with more of these corporate innovation perspectives. And of course, you know, we also have lots of entrepreneur perspectives, investor perspectives, and all kinds of perspectives that help you make better decisions as you navigate through your strategy. So see you soon and talk to you again. Bye-bye.